Chapter Twenty Eight of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Eight. This wandering race, severed from other men, boast yet their intercourse with human arts. The seas, the woods, the deserts which they haunt find them acquainted with their secret treasures, and unregarded herbs and flowers and blossoms display undreamt-of powers when gathered by them. The Jew Our history must needs retrograde for the space of a few pages, to inform the reader of certain passages material to his understanding the rest of this important narrative. His own intelligence may indeed have easily anticipated that, when Ivanhoe sunk down and seemed abandoned by all the world, it was the importunity of Rebecca which prevailed on her father to have the gallant young warrior transported from the lists to the house which for the time the Jews inhabited in the suburbs of Ashby. It would not have been difficult to have persuaded Isaac to this step in any other circumstances, for his disposition was kind and grateful but he had also the prejudices and scrupulous timidity of his persecuted people, and those were to be conquered. "'Holy Abraham!' he exclaimed. "'He is a good youth, and my heart bleeds to see the gore trickle down his rich embroidered hackathon, and his corslet of goodly price. But to carry him to our house! Damsel, hast thou well considered? He is a Christian!' and by our law we may not deal with the stranger and gentile, save for the advantage of our commerce. "'Speak not so, my dear father,' replied Rebecca. "'We may not indeed mix with them in banquet and in jollity, but in wounds and in misery the gentile becometh the Jew's brother.' "'I would I knew what the rabbi Jacob ben Tudela would opine on it,' replied Isaac. "'Nevertheless, the good youth must not bleed to death.' Let Seth and Reuben bear him to Ashby. Nay, let him be placed in my litter, said Rebecca. I will mount one of the palfreys. That were to expose thee to the gaze of those dogs of Ishmael and of Edom, whispered Isaac, with a suspicious glance towards the crowd of knights and squires. But Rebecca was already busied in carrying her charitable purpose into effect, and listed not what he said until Isaac, seizing the sleeve of her mantle, again exclaimed, in a hurried voice, "'Beard of Aaron, what if the youth perish? If he die in our custody, shall we not be held guilty of his blood, and be torn to pieces by the multitude?' "'He will not die, my father,' said Rebecca, gently extricating herself from the grasp of Isaac. "'He will not die unless we abandon him. And if so, we are indeed answerable for his blood to God and to man.' "'Nay,' said Isaac, releasing his hold, "'it grieveth me as much to see the drops of his blood "'as if they were so many golden byzants from mine own purse. "'And I well know that the lessons of Miriam, "'daughter of the Rabbi Manasses of Byzantium, "'whose soul is in paradise, "'have made thee skilful in the art of healing, "'and that thou knowest the craft of herbs "'and the force of elixirs. "'Therefore do as thy mind giveth thee.' Thou art a good damsel, a blessing and a crown, and a song of rejoicing unto me and unto my house, and unto the people of my fathers. The apprehensions of Isaac, however, were not ill-founded, and the generous and grateful benevolence of his daughter 
exposed her on her return to Ashby to the unhallowed gaze of Brian de Bois-Gilbert. The Templar twice passed and repassed them on the road, fixing his bold and ardent look on the beautiful Jewess, and we have already seen the consequences of the admiration which her charms excited when accident threw her into the power of that unprincipled voluptuary. Rebecca lost no time in causing the patient to be transported to their temporary dwelling, and proceeded with her own hands to examine and to bind up his wounds. The youngest reader of romances and romantic ballads must recollect how often the females, during the Dark Ages, as they are called, were initiated into the mysteries of surgery, and how frequently the gallant knight submitted the wounds of his person to her cure, whose eyes had yet more deeply penetrated his heart. But the Jews, both male and female, possessed in practice the medical science in all its branches, and the monarchs and powerful barons of the time frequently committed themselves to the charge of some experienced sage among this despised people, when wounded or in sickness. The aid of the Jewish physicians was not the less eagerly sought after, though a general belief prevailed among the Christians that the Jewish rabbins were deeply acquainted with the occult sciences, and particularly with the cabalistical art, which had its name and origin in the studies of the sages of Israel. Neither did the rabbins disown such acquaintance with supernatural arts, which added nothing, for what could add aught, to the hatred with which their nation was regarded, while it diminished the contempt with which that malevolence was mingled. A Jewish magician might be the subject of equal abhorrence with a Jewish usurer, but he could not be equally despised. It is besides probable, considering the wonderful cures they are said to have performed, that the Jews possessed some secrets of the healing arts peculiar to themselves, and which, with the exclusive spirit arising out of their condition, they took great care to conceal from the Christians amongst whom they dwelt. The beautiful Rebecca had been heedfully brought up in all the knowledge proper to her nation, which her apt and powerful mind had retained, arranged, and enlarged, in the course of a progress beyond her years, her sex, and even the age in which she lived. Her knowledge of medicine and of the healing art had been acquired under an aged Jewess, the daughter of one of their most celebrated doctors, who loved Rebecca as her own child, and was believed to have communicated to her secrets which had been left to herself by her sage father at the same time and under the same circumstances. The fate of Miriam had indeed been to fall a sacrifice to the fanaticism of the times, but her secrets had survived in her apt pupil. Rebecca, thus endowed with knowledge as with beauty, was universally revered and admired by her own tribe, who almost regarded her as one of those gifted women mentioned in the sacred history. Her father himself, out of reverence for her talents, which involuntarily mingled itself with his unbounded affection, permitted the maiden a greater liberty than was usually indulged to those of her sex by the habits of her people and was, as we have just seen, frequently guided by her opinion, even in preference to his own. When Ivanhoe reached the habitation of Isaac, he was still in a state of unconsciousness, owing to the profuse loss of blood which had taken place during his exertions in the lists. Rebecca examined the wound, and having applied to it such vulnerary remedies as her art prescribed, 
informed her father that if fever could be averted, of which the great bleeding rendered her little apprehensive, and if the healing balsam of Miriam retained its virtue, there was nothing to fear for his guest's life, and that he might with safety travel to York with them on the ensuing day. Isaac looked a little blank at this enunciation. His charity would willingly have stopped short at Ashby, or at most would have left the wounded Christian to be tended in the house where he was residing at present, with an assurance to the Hebrew to whom it belonged that all expenses should be duly discharged. To this, however, Rebecca opposed many reasons, of which we shall only mention two that had peculiar weight with Isaac. The one was that she would on no account put the phial of precious balsam into the hands of another physician, even of her own tribe, lest that valuable mystery should be discovered. The other, that this wounded knight, Wilfred of Ivanhoe, was an intimate favourite of Richard Coeur de Lyon, and that in case the monarch should return, Isaac, who had supplied his brother John with treasure to prosecute his rebellious purposes, would stand in no small need of a powerful protector who enjoyed Richard's favour. "'Thou art speaking but sooth, Rebecca,' said Isaac, giving way to these weighty arguments. "'It were an offending of heaven to betray the secrets of the blessed Miriam, for the good which heaven giveth is not rashly to be squandered upon others, whether it be talents of gold and shekels of silver, or whether it be the secret mysteries of a wise physician. Assuredly they should be preserved to those to whom providence hath vouchsafed them. And him whom the Nazarenes of England call the lion's heart, assuredly it were better for me to fall into the hands of a strong lion of Idumea than into his." if he shall have got assurance of my dealing with his brother. Wherefore I will lend ear to thy counsel, and this youth shall journey with us unto York, and our house shall be as a home to him until his wound shall be healed. And if he of the lion-heart shall return to the land, as is now noised abroad, then shall this Wilfred of Ivanhoe be unto me as a wall of defence, when the king's displeasure shall burn high against thy father." and if he doth not return, this Wilfred may nevertheless repay us our charges when he shall gain treasure by the strength of his spear and of his sword, even as he did yesterday and this day also. For the youth is a good youth, and keepeth the day which he appointeth, and restoreth that which he borroweth, and succoreth the Israelite, even the child of my father's house, when he is encompassed by strong thieves and sons of Belial." It was not until evening was nearly closed that Ivanhoe was restored to consciousness of his situation. He awoke from a broken slumber, under the confused impressions which are naturally attendant on the recovery from a state of insensibility. He was unable for some time to recall exactly to memory the circumstances which had preceded his fall in the lists, or to make out any connected chain of the events in which he had been engaged upon the yesterday. A sense of wounds and injury, joined to great weakness and exhaustion, was mingled with the recollection of blows dealt and received, of steeds rushing upon each other, overthrowing and overthrown, of shouts and clashing of arms, and all the heady tumult of a confused fight. An effort to draw aside the curtain of his couch was in some degree successful, although rendered difficult by the pain of his wound. To his great surprise, he found himself in a room magnificently furnished, but having cushions instead of chairs to rest upon, 
and in other respects partaking so much of oriental costume that he began to doubt whether he had not, during his sleep, been transported back again to the land of Palestine. The impression was increased when, the tapestry being drawn aside, a female form, dressed in a rich habit which partook more of the eastern taste than that of Europe, glided through the door which it concealed, and was followed by a swarthy domestic. As the wounded knight was about to address this fair apparition, she imposed silence by placing her slender finger upon her ruby lips, while the attendant, approaching him, proceeded to uncover Ivanhoe's side, and the lovely Jewess satisfied herself that the bandage was in its place, and the wound doing well. She performed her task with a graceful and dignified simplicity and modesty, which might, even in more civilised days, have served to redeem it from whatever might seem repugnant to female delicacy. The idea of so young and beautiful a person, engaged in attendance on a sick-bed, or in dressing the wound of one of a different sex, was melted away and lost in that of a beneficent being contributing her effectual aid to relieve pain and to avert the stroke of death. Rebecca's few and brief directions were given in the Hebrew language to the old domestic, and he, who had been frequently her assistant in similar cases, obeyed them without reply. The accents of an unknown tongue, however harsh they might have sounded when uttered by another, had, coming from the beautiful Rebecca, the romantic and pleasing effect which fancy ascribes to the charms pronounced by some beneficent fairy, unintelligible indeed to the ear, but from the sweetness of the utterance and benignity of aspect which accompanied them, touching and affecting to the heart. Without making an attempt at further question, Ivanhoe suffered them in silence to take the measures they thought most proper for his recovery, and it was not until those were completed, and this kind physician about to retire, that his curiosity could no longer be suppressed. "'Gentle maiden,' he began, in the Arabian tongue, with which his eastern travels had rendered him familiar, and which he thought most likely to be understood by the turbaned and caftaned damsel who stood before him, I pray you, gentle maiden, of your courtesy. But here he was interrupted by his fair physician, a smile which she could scarce suppress, dimpling for an instant a face whose general expression was that of contemplative melancholy. I am of England, Sir Knight, and speak the English tongue, although my dress and my lineage belong to another climate. Noble damsel, again the knight of Ivanhoe began, and again Rebecca hastened to interrupt him. "'Bestow not on me, Sir Knight,' she said, the epithet of noble. "'It is well you should speedily know that your handmaiden is a poor Jewess, the daughter of that Isaac of York, to whom you were so lately a good and kind lord. It well becomes him, and those of his household, to render to you such careful tendance as your present state necessarily demands. I know not whether the fair Rowena would have been altogether satisfied with the species of emotion with which her devoted knight had hitherto gazed on the beautiful features and fair form and lustrous eyes of the lovely Rebecca, eyes whose brilliancy was shaded and, as it were, mellowed by the fringe of her long silken eyelashes, and which a minstrel would have compared to the evening star darting its rays through a bower of jessamine but Ivanhoe was too good a Catholic to retain the same class of feelings towards a Jewess, 
This Rebecca had foreseen, and for this very purpose she had hastened to mention her father's name and lineage. Yet, for the fair and wise daughter of Isaac was not without a touch of female weakness, she could not but sigh internally when the glance of respectful admiration, not altogether unmixed with tenderness, with which Ivanhoe had hitherto regarded his unknown benefactress, was exchanged at once for a manner cold, composed, and collected, and fraught with no deeper feeling than that which expressed a grateful sense of courtesy received from an unexpected quarter and from one of an inferior race. It was not that Ivanhoe's former carriage expressed more than that general devotional homage which youth always pays to beauty, yet it was mortifying that one word should operate as a spell to remove poor Rebecca, who could not be supposed altogether ignorant of her title to such homage, into a degraded class, to whom it could not be honourably rendered. But the gentleness and candour of Rebecca's nature imputed no fault to Ivanhoe for sharing in the universal prejudices of his age and religion. On the contrary, the fair Jewess, though sensible her patients now regarded her as one of a race of reprobation, with whom it was disgraceful to hold any beyond the most necessary intercourse, ceased not to pay the same patient and devoted attention to his safety and convalescence. She informed him of the necessity they were under of removing to York, and of her father's resolution to transport him thither, and tend him in his own house, until his health should be restored. Ivanhoe expressed great repugnance to this plan, which he grounded on unwillingness to give father trouble to his benefactors. Was there not, he said, in Ashby or near it, some Saxon Franklin, or even some wealthy peasant who would endure the burden of a wounded countryman's residence with him, until he should be again able to bear his armour? Was there no convent of Saxon endowment where he could be received? Or could he not be transported as far as Burton, where he was sure to find hospitality with Waltheof, the abbot of St. Withold's, to whom he was related? Any the worst of these harbourages, said Rebecca, with a melancholy smile, would unquestionably be more fitting for your residence than the abode of a despised Jew. Yet, Sir Knight, unless you would dismiss your physician, you cannot change your lodging. Our nation, as you will know, can cure wounds, though we deal not in inflicting them. And in our own family in particular are secrets which have been handed down since the days of Solomon, and of which you have already experienced the advantages. No Nazarene, I crave your forgiveness, Sir Knight, no Christian leech within the four seas of Britain could enable you to bear your corslet within a month. And how soon wilt thou enable me to brook it? said Ivanhoe impatiently. "'Within eight days, if thou wilt be patient and conformable to my directions,' replied Rebecca. "'By our blessed lady,' said Wilfred, "'if it be not a sin to name her here, "'it is no time for me or any true knight to be bedridden. "'And if thou accomplish thy promise, maiden, "'I will pay thee with my cask full of crowns, "'come by them as I may.' "'I will accomplish my promise,' said Rebecca, and thou shalt bear thine armour on the eighth day from hence, if thou wilt grant me but one boon in the stead of the silver thou dost promise me. If it be within my power, and such as a true Christian knight may yield to one of thy people, replied Ivanhoe, I will grant thy boon blithely and thankfully. Nay, answered Rebecca, 
I will but pray of thee to believe henceforward that a Jew may do good service to a Christian without desiring other guerdon than the blessing of the great Father who made both Jew and Gentile. It were a sin to doubt it, maiden, replied Ivanhoe, and I repose myself on thy skill without further question or scruple, well trusting you will enable me to bear my corslet on the eighth day. And now, my kind leech, let me inquire of the news abroad. What of the noble Saxon Cedric and his household? What of the lovely lady—' He stopped, as if unwilling to speak Rowena's name in the house of a Jew. Of her, I mean, who was named Queen of the Tournament. And who was selected by you, Sir Knight, to hold that dignity with judgment which was admired as much as your valour, replied Rebecca. The blood which Ivanhoe had lost did not prevent a flush from crossing his cheek, feeling that he had incautiously betrayed a deep interest in Rowena by the awkward attempt he had made to conceal it. "'It was less of her I would speak,' said he, "'than of Prince John, and I would fain know somewhat of a faithful squire and why he now attends me not.' "'Let me use my authority as a leech,' answered Rebecca, and enjoin you to keep silence, and avoid agitating reflections, whilst I apprise you of what you desire to know. Prince John hath broken off the tournament, and set forward in all haste towards York, with the nobles, knights, and churchmen of his party, after collecting such sums as they could wring, by fair means or foul, from those who are esteemed the wealthy of the land. It is said he designs to assume his brother's crown." "'Not without a blow struck in its defence," said Ivanhoe, raising himself upon the couch. "'If there were but one true subject in England, I will fight for Richard's title with the best of them, I one or two in his just quarrel.' "'But that you may be able to do so,' said Rebecca, touching his shoulder with her hand, "'you must now observe my directions and remain quiet.' "'True, maiden,' said Ivanhoe as quiet as these disquieted times will permit. And of Cedric and his household? His steward came but brief while since, said the Jewess, panting with haste, to ask my father for certain monies, the price of wool, the growth of Cedric's flocks. And from him I learnt that Cedric and Athelstane of Coningsburg had left Prince John's lodging in high displeasure, and were about to set forth on their return homeward. "'Went any lady with them to the banquet?' said Wilfred. "'The Lady Rowena,' said Rebecca, answering the question with more precision than it had been asked, "'the Lady Rowena went not to the Prince's feast, and, as the steward reported to us, she is now on her journey back to Rotherwood, with her guardian Cedric. And, touching your faithful squire, Gurth—' "'Ha!' exclaimed the knight. "'Knowest thou his name?' "'But thou dost,' he immediately added, "'and well thou mayst, for it was from thy hand, "'and, as I am now convinced, from thine own generosity of spirit, "'that he received but yesterday a hundred zecchins.' "'Speak not of that,' said Rebecca, blushing deeply. "'I see how easy it is for the tongue to betray "'what the heart would gladly conceal.' "'But this sum of gold,' said Ivanhoe gravely, my honour is concerned in repaying it to your father. Let it be as thou wilt, said Rebecca, when eight days have passed away. 
but think not and speak not now of aught that may retard thy recovery. Be it so, kind maiden, said Ivanhoe. I were most ungrateful to dispute thy commands. But one word of the fate of poor Gurth, and I have done with questioning thee. I grieve to tell thee, Sir Knight, answered the Jewess, that he is in custody by the order of Cedric. And then, observing the distress which her communication gave to Wilfred, she instantly added, But the steward Oswald said that if nothing occurred to renew his master's displeasure against him, he was sure that Cedric would pardon Gurth, a faithful serf and one who stood high in favour, and who had but committed this error out of the love which he bore to Cedric's son. And he said, moreover, that he and his comrades, and especially Wamba the jester, were resolved to warn Gurth to make his escape by the way, in case Cedric's ire against him could not be mitigated. "'Would to God they may keep their purpose,' said Ivanhoe. "'But it seems as if I were destined to bring ruin on whomsoever hath shown kindness to me. My king, by whom I was honoured and distinguished, thou seest that the brother most indebted to him is raising his arms to grasp his crown.' My regard hath brought restraint and trouble on the fairest of her sex, and now my father in his mood may slay this poor bondsman but for his love and service to me. Thou seest, maiden, what an ill-fated wretch thou dost labour to assist. Be wise and let me go, ere the misfortunes which track my footsteps like slot-hounds shall involve thee also in their pursuit. Nay, said Rebecca. Thy weakness and thy grief, Sir Knight, make thee miscalculate the purposes of heaven. Thou hast been restored to thy country when it most needed the assistance of a strong hand and a true heart. And thou hast humbled the pride of thine enemies and those of thy king, when their horn was most highly exalted. And for the evil which thou hast sustained, seest thou not that heaven has raised thee a helper and a physician, even among the most despised of the land? Therefore be of good courage, and trust that thou art preserved for some marvel which thine arm shall work before this people. Adieu, and having taken the medicine which I shall send thee by the hand of Reuben, compose thyself again to rest, that thou mayst be the more able to endure the journey on the succeeding day. Ivanhoe was convinced by the reasoning, and obeyed the directions of Rebecca. The draught which Reuben administered was of a sedative and narcotic quality, and secured the patient sound and undisturbed slumbers. In the morning his kind physician found him entirely free from feverish symptoms, and fit to undergo the fatigue of a journey. He was deposited in the horse-litter which had brought him from the lists, and every precaution taken for his travelling with ease. In one circumstance only, even the entreaties of Rebecca were unable to secure sufficient attention to the accommodation of the wounded knight. Isaac, like the enriched traveller of Juvenal's tenth satire, had ever the fear of robbery before his eyes, conscious that he would be alike accounted fair game by the marauding Norman noble and by the Saxon outlaw. He therefore journeyed at a great rate and made short halts and shorter repasts so that he passed by Cedric and Athelstane, who had several hours the start of him, but who had been delayed by their protracted feasting at the convent of St. Withold's. Yet such was the virtue of Miriam's balsam, or such the strength of Ivanhoe's constitution, 
that he did not sustain from the hurried journey that inconvenience which his kind physician had apprehended. In another point of view, however, the Jew's haste proved somewhat more than good speed. The rapidity with which he insisted on travelling bred several disputes between him and the party whom he had hired to attend him as a guard. These men were Saxons, and not free by any means from the national love of ease and good living which the Normans stigmatised as laziness and gluttony. Reversing Shylock's position, they had accepted the employment in hopes of feeding upon the wealthy Jew, and were very much displeased when they found themselves disappointed by the rapidity with which he insisted on their proceeding. They remonstrated also upon the risk of damage to their horses by these forced marches. Finally there arose betwixt Isaac and his satellites a deadly feud concerning the quantity of wine and ale to be allowed for consumption at each meal. And thus it happened, that when the alarm of danger approached, and that which Isaac feared was likely to come upon him, he was deserted by the discontented mercenaries on whose protection he had relied, without using the means necessary to secure their attachment. In this deplorable condition the Jew, with his daughter and her wounded patient, were found by Cedric, as has already been noticed, and soon afterwards fell into the power of de Bracy and his confederates. Little notice was at first taken of the horse-litter, and it might have remained behind but for the curiosity of de Bracy, who looked into it under the impression that it might contain the object of his enterprise, for Rowena had not unveiled herself. But de Bracy's astonishment was considerable, when he discovered that the litter contained a wounded man, who, conceiving himself to have fallen into the power of Saxon outlaws, with whom his name might be a protection for himself and his friends, frankly avowed himself to be Wilfred of Ivanhoe. The ideas of chivalrous honour which, amidst his wildness and levity, never utterly abandoned de Bracy, prohibited him from doing the knight any injury in his defenceless condition, and equally interdicted his betraying him to Front de Boeuf, who would have had no scruples to put to death, under any circumstances, the rival claimant of the fief of Ivanhoe. On the other hand, to liberate a suitor preferred by the Lady Rowena, as the events of the tournament, and indeed Wilfred's previous banishment from his father's house, had made matter of notoriety, was a pitch far above the flight of de Bracy's generosity. A middle course betwixt good and evil was all which he found himself capable of adopting, and he commanded two of his own squires to keep close by the litter, and to suffer no one to approach it. If questioned, they were directed by their master to say that the empty litter of the Lady Rowena was employed to transport one of their comrades who had been wounded in the scuffle. On arriving at Torquilstone, while the Knight Templar and the Lord of that castle were each intent upon their own schemes, the one on the Jew's treasure, and the other on his daughter, de Bracy's squires conveyed Ivanhoe, still under the name of a wounded comrade, to a distant apartment. This explanation was accordingly returned by these men to front of birth, when he questioned them why they did not make for the battlements upon the alarm. "'A wounded companion?' he replied, in great wrath and astonishment. "'No wonder that churls and yeomen wax so presumptuous as even to lay leaguer before castles, and that clowns and swineherds send defiances to nobles, since men-at-arms have turned sick men's nurses, 
and free companions are grown keepers of dying folks' curtains when the castle is about to be assailed. "'To the battlements, ye loitering villains!' he exclaimed, raising his stentorian voice till the arches around rung again. "'To the battlements, or I will splinter your bones with this truncheon!' The men sulkily replied, that they desired nothing better than to go to the battlements, providing Front de Boeuf would bear them out with their master, who had commanded them to tend the dying man. "'The dying man, knaves,' rejoined the baron. "'I promise thee we shall all be dying men, and we stand not to it the more stoutly. But I will relieve the guard upon this caitiff companion of yours. Here, Erfried, hag, fiend of a Saxon witch, hearest me not?' "'Tend me this bedridden fellow, since he must needs be tended, whilst these knaves use their weapons. Here be two arblasts, comrade, with windlaces and quarrels. To the barbican with you, and see you drive each bolt through a Saxon brain.' The men, who, like most of their description, were fond of enterprise and detested inaction, went joyfully to the scene of danger, as they were commanded. And thus the charge of Ivanhoe was transferred— to Erfried, or Ulrika. But she, whose brain was burning with remembrance of injuries and with hopes of vengeance, was readily induced to devolve upon Rebecca the care of her patient. End of chapter 28